what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? More connected. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I want humans to feel more connected to each other. There's 7 billion other people out there who haven't been Neil Bardhan. And that's very, very cool to me because I want to hear what all those people have been doing their time. What does it take to foster and cultivate curiosity rather yeah. than the overwhelm that that we see yeah. so often in like a world that is so oversaturated with content. If I asked you, what are you curious yeah. about? You could probably list me a bunch of things, right? But then I think what, what is really necessary is what do you think you could be curious about that you don't know that you're curious about? Where do you have mm. kind of a gap in your understanding of the world because of you know what you've decided is important or what messaging has been provided to you about like, oh, you should be curious about Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Paul Reese. Fam, we got a live one for you today. In addition to holding a PhD in brain and cognitive sciences from the University of Rochester, Neil Barden is the executive director of the Broad Street Review and the director of applied storytelling at First Person Arts, both here in Philly. A theater performer, a talented improviser to boot. Content warning here for you, we talk about the death of his father and we talk a lot about the impact of COVID on live theater. So, viewer and listener discretion advised. We go on to talk about storytelling, the life skills that people can learn from studying theater and especially improv, the damage to human interaction caused by social media and some of the silver linings and a little bit about bereavement too. This was such an incredible privilege in spite of all of the craziness that was happening during the lockdowns and COVID. Please enjoy my chat to Neil. I love spinny chairs, number one. Because you can just sort of lean right back, and I'm plugged in right now, so I can't. And I'm like, I'm on wired headphones, but I love the Wii. How can you not love the Wii? Uh, but you wish the spinny chairs could read your mind as to whether or not this was a good time to be spinnable or not. Yes, yes. There's a, there's a part of my like my body like I I'm 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 a fidgeter. I'm like kind of like recently recently like working on like ADHD treatments, but I don't think there's ever a time where my body doesn't want to fidget or at least be yeah. moving something. Yeah, it's very, very challenging for, for many people. There's something unnatural about like sitting rock, rock still in in a <laughs> desk chair. Like, I don't I don't think we were yes. meant for that. I don't know. I wasn't. <laughs> My body is built for nachos. What is the ideal flavor and topping common, uh, combination for nachos? Oh, I didn't think this question was going in that direction, but I'm glad it did. Some, some carnitas, some sour cream, Ooh. a good blend of cheese that's like the consistency is so tricky because you don't want it to be a gooey 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 yes. um, you know yellow bowling alley nacho cheese but you exactly. don't want it to be totally like a block of cheddar straight from the fridge so something melty <laughs> that has a little stretch a little pull to it some diced jalapenos uh, we were doing we were doing sheet pan nachos like once a once a week as dinner a couple months ago by the way, this is going to be 90 minutes about nacho content, which it, I think it might be internet, which I, I would personally be delighted um, because this is important. So here, here's a sidebar about that. 
Okay. When I, so I lived in the Netherlands for three years in my late twenties. Cool. And at various bars, you could order nachos, but you never received nachos in the way that you and I are talking about them. You received flavored tortilla chips, effectively knockoff Doritos with a sweet chili sauce, like little dish on the side. That's what Dutch nachos were. And I would forget occasionally and then be like, oh, I'm so disappointed that all I've received again is Doritos and dip. I know that you're not um, in your usual recording spot, but I need to call out something that's in your background. And I see what looks to me like Mm -hmm. a couple of Emmy Awards. Am I wrong? Mm -hmm. Uh, My sister-in-law is a documentary filmmaker, and she's worked on a number of things that have gone to TV and have been awarded for their presence there. I've had the privilege of doing a story Hmm. with First Person Arts, and it was done during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I recorded from home. From your point in doing like some a lot of that sort of like administration and community building work with first person arts what was the the pivot to digital Mm -hmm. i can start on i guess kind of like the abstract level which is that it seemed important Mm -hmm. to do that as quickly as we could and learn as much as we could as soon as things were shifting in in march 2020 you know one of the things that we do is we capture kind of the stories of of our time and we thought, yeah, now seems like a, a major moment in history. What are people experiencing? What yeah. what have they already experienced that they're that they're figuring out? What are they right in the middle of? And see see how long this takes. Yeah, which I think we still don't have a great answer for. But we said, okay, we're used to doing in person activities where people connect over telling their true stories. If we do that virtually now, what is gained? What is a, a new challenge? Um, and what's just like in person? You know, there's there's some things that are going to be the same because it's it's people wherever you go. And one of the um, one of the most lovely things we saw was the really now obvious to many of us uh, notion that people could watch from wherever they were. You know, it didn't matter if they were in California or Vermont or Florida. Mm. They could watch a show yeah. that was theoretically based in Philly because everything was on the Internet. And that that's a, a game changer for people who want to participate, um, but might not be able to, to go somewhere yeah. because... Who's going to fly up from Florida for a Tuesday night? You know, yeah. Drop their name in the bucket show in Philly and see what happens. But on the internet, nobody nobody minds exactly where you are, and uh, it's it's it makes the experience all the richer. So um, that was really just a great thing to see was connecting with storytellers all over um, the country and the world, and that was true from our like, production side, but also as an yes. audience member, I was getting to see shows that I wouldn't necessarily have gotten to go yes. to because they were in Boston or New York or. The internet, but hesitant folks who said, this doesn't feel like what I want. Uh, this isn't what I come for. I want to be in a room with people. And they, they, you know, they know, they knew at the time mm. we weren't doing that. And we've still barely done it since, since everything shifted. People said, this isn't what I'm used to. This isn't what I, I like out of it. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to skip for now. Uh, and I think we saw some of that with um, audience members and that's fine, right? Like, not everybody's going to be comfortable in every setting. And so we were just, we were doing the best we could. Right. You ta- you've talked so much um, in previous interviews about the work that storytelling does in building community and helping us know each other and helping us build human connection. I wonder if you can articulate what differences you saw as that was happening. The biggest one that I would say, the biggest difference between kind of virtual and in-person is it's a lot harder virtually to go up to somebody mm-hmm. afterwards and say, I really liked your story. You can do it in the, in the chat room. But that's not the same as 
you know, it's a one-on-one yeah. conversation that probably other people aren't paying attention to, you know, that's, that's, it was a big thing of, of when I first started going to story slams uh, with first person arts, it was very cool that like there, they weren't, they weren't talent that was <laughs> hid behind the curtain yes. during the show. Right. We're like in the, in the green room, they were just cu- literally coming up from the audience, taking stage for minutes, sitting back down. That was one major difference. The flip side of it is for performers and I think you and I have experienced this uh, in like comedy spaces. As a performer, it's a lot harder to read the room. If you're sitting in your living room, standing in your basement, whatever it is, it's not the same as having, you know, a couple dozen human beings breathing the same air as you and making eye contact with you or looking down at their phones or walking out of the room entirely. You just don't know what that's like in a virtual setting. You don't know what the attention level is of your audience members. You have to trust that they're there and that's all you got because I think it raises interesting technological questions as well as societal ones about like, what does it mean to be performing with an audience and what are people looking for, literally looking for, but also listening for and also feeling for because something coming in over the internet is only going to do so much for a couple of your senses. And if the sound is attenuated or mixed differently, it's it's just, it's not going to feel the same as a room. So I guess I'm so I'm thinking about this project of building community and 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 connection a bit. The the thing that I'm wondering is so we have this one particular format that we're used to you that that we we're used to in the context of live theater to build community. An audience of people gather around a performing cast or maybe two. There's the experience of walking into the theater, buying the ticket, waiting in line, sitting in the pre-show in the seats, letting the anticipation build. Now, maybe less because of phones. But there's a certain way, a certain set of mores that that we've come to expect this being the way we've always done it, the way that it's worked, the way that we've we know to how to build community. I wonder, are are we I wonder if we are missing out on the possibility of whatever community could be being built on the internet by trying to approximate as closely as possible mm-hmm. the feel of an in-person theater but for virtual, you know? I know exactly what you mean. Uh, I think the simple answer is yes because the internet just has different possibilities. And so if you create the work and the experience for what the platform is capable of, then, then you're, you're designing it right. If you're starting from the the viewpoint of, Oh, we're replicating a live experience, an in-person experience on the internet. No, you're you're not replicating it. You know that you're creating a, a, a feature feature reduced version of it. So why not kind of like build up rather than like, okay, we're, we're aiming for, hitting all these points, but we're just going to miss out on a couple. We we both work in entrepreneurial spaces, in entrepreneurial energies. One of the things that that we always talk about in those spaces is that data and pivoting is not a thing to be afraid of, but it's a, a natural progression of energy in following where where our where our clients where our customers where the people that we serve um, what they need what they want yeah i hold that intention with the steve jobs model of that he his whole thing was to just tell people what they should want i wonder right when we think of like the work 
of storytelling as perhaps like the the overture for a relationship the the service on offer if the intended outcome is human mm-hmm. connection what's the right balance between the the storyteller and the organization behind it creating the stage and setting the expectation mm-hmm. for the audience and being present to what the audience needs in order to to connect yeah yeah this is a great question that i haven't thought about this way so i'm just going to start riffing and see where i end up and i think it's start with the audience you were saying something about kind of following the data and not being afraid of it and i think that was a big lesson for a lot of folks in 2020 2021 was the audience's expectations changed every couple weeks to months. And so if you'd been producing something in kind of early 2020, the same thing might not work six months later for all sorts of reasons, right? New technologies develop, people get tired, people are looking for other things. The whole nature of the health situation is different. You know, the weather is a factor in a way that it wasn't before. I think you just have to say like, okay, what is the audience looking for? Like, how do they want to consume this? And there's, I think, easy ways to carve that up and then more challenging ones. What, how do they want to consume it? And what are they actually looking for? Are they looking to interact with storytellers or are they just looking to hear those stories and they don't actually mind if there's no interaction? Um, and, or I thought here, hang on. Okay. It's, but then it's not also just, not just the audience to the story connection. It's not just the audience to the storyteller connection. It's also audience to audience connection. Yes. Yes. This is an interesting, it feel it almost feels like a puzzle to me, you know? And I don't like, I don't know if if it's I don't I don't know if that's the right language to use for, to talk about a human relationship and human connection, mm-hmm. but I hear you identifying at least that piece about the audience. There is the, there there. What I think I hear is that there's still this sense of being committed to hearing the audience and being mindful of what they need while using different tools to accomplish that Mm -hmm. end. Is that maybe fair to say? Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it, that there's the different tools that are possible and that it's not just that there's one platform equals one tool, but that a given platform has a different, has a particular set of tools with some tweaks on them. And then another platform has another one and it's what's the best combination for what the audience is looking for and what the, in a way, what the organization and um, storytellers can support and and play along with easily. So what do you think the work, what is the responsibility, the, perhaps you might use the word obligation of the storyteller in this context? How, how do we think the storyteller needs to acknowledge or not the challenges the audience is facing in perceiving the story. We've got a couple abstract nouns to to toss your way. One is trust, right? They have to trust that the audience is literally still sitting there. Another is patience with and then the the big one for me, which is a word I've I've been throwing around a lot recently, but I also don't know how I define it is grace. Maybe you can define that for me, but I feel like it's it's grace around exactly those things. Like trust that the audience is there in in their best versions of themselves and doing the best that they can. And that if something if a motorcycle goes by or, you know, 
somebody sneezes or yeah somebody types in zoom oh i missed that the first minute what's going on but that's what live shows are yeah so i think you're you're the theologian here what do i know i, I wish i knew so much about i wish i knew more about polytheism and, and and those sorts of traditions and cultures but admittedly i don't like i'm i'm i can barely call myself an expert in in the abraham and abrahamic faiths broadly i have a reasonably firm grasp of like liturgical anglican liturgical theology and and and, for, and since we're on jeopardy matt amodio are, are are you a jeopardy enthusiast was jeopardy ever ever a corner of cornerstone of like your your media consumption that's a good question i would say there have been phases where i've watched daily for weeks or months and then i'll just not watch for a year or so i enjoy it i've always enjoyed trivia and i've taken i've taken like you know the online screening test to see if i can do do the big test mm -hmm. uh but never quite gotten that far and uh, i like to play it long at home and see what i actually know yeah yeah i noticed that jeopardy is trying <laughs> to get into the tiktok sort of sphere i personally have not tried to get into the tiktok sphere to use a, a biblical turn of phrase this feels like old wine and new wineskins is there a place for like and dinosaur is not a fair word to say because it's more revered than that. Is there word for like a, a legacy program like Jeopardy to to adapt to a platform like TikTok or or um, lest we all forget, rest in peace, uh, Vine? Right. I think so. Uh, I think particularly something like Jeopardy, where it is fast paced and bite sized already mm. in a lot of ways. And I think there's something to tie in there of using video content that presumably they're filming more than a few minutes a year out in the field. Yeah. How do they bring that to TikTok or how do they encourage people to play along at home or yeah, just think about how to, how would you, how would you play on Jeopardy? I, I don't know. Um, I, I've only dabbled in exploring TikTok. You know, I see what gets reposted elsewhere. I see what my friends send me, but I do think it matters again, kind of like what what you're starting with and Jeopardy. How long does a answer in question last? Like seven seconds? It's perfect. Yeah, I I didn't even think about it that way, but it's it's very bite sized, quick paced, easily consumable content. If you're like me, you love it when it's easy and uncomplicated to put good out into the world. And nothing helps you do those things more than a strong cup of coffee. Enter today's sponsor, BVP Coffee. BVP Coffee Company provides single origin coffee and unique blends from all around the world, all produced right here in Philadelphia. Their latest coffee, 1867, is an ode to the rich and illustrious legacies of Howard University and Morehouse College. BVP Coffee donates a dollar from each bag sold to support business students attending historically black colleges and universities. I tried it and loved it and makes a great iced coffee. BVP Coffee has a special offer for Uncommon Good listeners. Right now, you can go to their website, bvp.coffee, and save 10% on your order by using the code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout. You can even use this code for recurring coffee subscriptions, so you're always saving 10% and never missing a day of delicious coffee. When you use our code, you're supporting coffee farmers, HBCU students, BVP Coffee, and the podcast. That's code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout at bvp.coffee. 
now back to the program. I want to pivot a little bit. One of the things as we were sort of like working through the lag and working through our um, our technical challenges that you remind me of was that you perform regularly with with an improv company here in Philadelphia called the N Crowd. And from yes. both running their shows, the N Crowd has probably found a format that seems to work. What do you think about the the experience of another art form that we are transitioning digitally? I think the short form games that the N Crowd does have a nice spectrum of how well they work virtually. Some are a clear, eh, this isn't going to fly because we need our arms to be touching each other or something like that, right? Yeah. Some things are, hey, this is going to work with some modifications, which are great because, you know, there's like like nachos. There's no right way to do a lot of short form improv games. It's another one to write down, folks, right? They're, they're already adapted. They're already a bit like folklore in that. Like, yeah, there's probably yeah. a core to it, but people do it slightly different ways for all sorts of different reasons. And, uh, you know, how much of a difference does it make to what makes the game fun and or funny if I'm ducking off screen as opposed to running off stage, right? It changes the physical version for me because I don't have to, you know, at a great time for my brain, apparently. And then there's the stuff that's basically designed for internet interactions already, either because we've created them once we started playing with this, or they feel so clearly like, oh, you don't need to be in the same physical space. It's all word-based already, or, you know, physically just can be pretty agnostic as to where you are. So yeah, I think that's the the, yes. the thrust of why the end crowd has adapted so well to uh, virtual shows and um, a lot of other specifically improv forms have not as well. Mm. I, I would love to know a little bit more about the journey that it takes to becoming the Neil Barden of... 2022 what gosh we're we're recording in uh, we're recording in early august tell me about the journey that that brought you to where you are in this multi-hyphenate of speaking and entrepreneurship and storytelling and improv yeah uh, i'm glad that you have four hours of tape available to us because that's what it's going to take me to get through it all uh, listener buckle up now, I love how you put this together. A lot of times what I point to is a time in my life about 10 years ago. So I'm academically trained as a linguist doing science experiments on language and how adult humans use it, uh, specifically spoken words. And I'd known for years and years that I found words very interesting. I liked science generally, and it wasn't until you know I was kind of headed off to college that I realized, oh, you could do... you could study words through a scientific lens. Fantastic. So that kind of propelled me through college and grad school. And then I had a, a research-focused postdoc and found some of the, the environment interesting, but it wasn't quite what I needed to thrive. And I started to wonder, hmm. well, what else am I going to do with my life? If this isn't it, things feel sure. wrong here. But I was far from home. Uh, I was eating nachos in the Netherlands. It's actually a very good book title, actually, now that I think about it. And I just was trying to figure out, like, how do I square up what excites me intellectually, what feels right to me, kind of like in my heart, and where I want myself to kind of make money, but also have an impact on the world. And I started thinking that I, I like being around really clever people who are doing interesting things, talking about what they're up to. 
but I didn't want to be a researcher myself, I realized. And I didn't necessarily want to be a teacher in the way that a lot of people think about teaching, honestly, at any level. And so I kind of first step was, how do I apply what I know from linguistics and psychology to the challenges of technical communication kind of within a field at this very, very high level? So that was like a first pass at it was, how do we design PowerPoint slides? How do we think about talks? You know, I was working around linguists and memory experts, and I didn't understand what they were saying, and I couldn't remember what they said, and it just seemed all horribly ironic that this was the situation that, that we were in. And to be clear, right, some of this was my own bias and my own emotional state of being frustrated with myself and kind of the situations I placed myself in. But at the core, there was still the, the challenge that within the field, you know, communication wasn't what it could be. And then the next kind of component to it was I'd started listening to a lot yeah. of storytelling podcasts and thinking about these performances and how much I was getting out of them emotionally and factually sometimes and just hearing yeah. about another person's life. I thought, these are so cool. This is like a mini theater show. I'd done theater in high school and college um, and never planned to make a career of it, really. But this was the first time that I thought, maybe there's something about bringing the, the performing arts to these scientific settings. And so I started to be curious about how do I train in storytelling? What stories do I need to listen to? Who is, who's thinking about this? Who else is bringing stories to science and vice versa? Sure. And that introduced me to a whole whole set of fascinating individuals and organizations. And then yeah. that the kind of last part was my brother, uh, who's a trained scientist himself, he took a class on improv for scientists and he fell in love with improv. And we, we'd both seen it before, you know, college shows and, you know, a bar here and there. And we liked, I mean, we'd always liked comedy. And we realized like, oh, this is an art form that we're both really curious about for our artistic growth, personal growth, professional growth, and, and spreading this as a concept of like, how do you create something brand new with people in a different setting, whether you know them already, or you've been playing or working with them for years. And so that led me to doing improv, learning it, and kind of getting involved in a number of ways. And so I left academia, I started doing some consulting, started doing some taking some classes in all sorts of things. And uh, folks at First Person Arts, uh, people around Philly, met people kind of across the country who are involved in the arts and the application of the arts to group communication and individual science communication. And I just started putting together kind of a little stew of, of my interests and building, I call it kind of like a 90 degree turn of a career because I didn't wasn't trying to leave science behind completely. I was just trying to, a new approach to being in technical settings. So... Fast forward to now, and I'm the director of applied storytelling at First Person Arts, I'm a performer, a writer, and uh, yeah, I don't practice science anymore, but nice. I like being around smart people of all sorts of different fields and and how they are passionate about what they're working on. And uh, yeah, it's it's a lot closer to where I think I, I I want to be than where I was ten years ago. Do you have a sense of where you want to be, like what the goal is? In many ways, no. Not as much anymore. The blend that I was trying to sure. bring and accomplish. I don't think I have a particular goal of a title or position at this moment. I keep getting to do a lot of it. And that's really great. Perfect. And we were talking about some of the format of what we talked through and, and talking about mm -hmm. the sort of ideas and people and places and experiences in the past that, that make us who we are. There are a lot of people, and, and, and I mentioned this to you, who, who talk about like core principles and beliefs, values that 
help them sort of help define who they are. For many people, myself included, we like to talk a lot about for for others, um, the work of finding that sort of drive, mission, vision, the language of religion is helpful. The response that you gave me that I found to just be beautiful and fascinating that I would love to hear a little bit more about is that storytelling is my religion. Could you say more? Yeah, um, I'm glad you remembered what I said because I did not. You started down that path and I thought, oh goodness, what what did I spout at you? But what it is now is hearing other people's stories is understanding what other humans are doing on this planet and why they are the way they are and what they're trying to do. What do you think and we gain I guess as go ahead. for ourselves? Like when I listen to a story, when you, Neil Barden, listen to a story, what is there to gain in the action of, of the hearing? Perspective and appreciation. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think broadening it out a little bit when we when we hear each other's stories when that we gain as a people as as a society when mm. when we receive a gift like that one one phrasing that we use a lot at first person arts and I think is is true more broadly is that you don't know somebody's story until they share it with you mm. and that they choose to share it with you mhm Right. So as a people, we understand, oh, right. This Dave has this experience, fell off a bike. Somebody walked by and helped him up. Right. Yeah. You learn something about Dave and like one, okay, Dave rides a bike. Sometimes Dave can <laughs> maybe appreciate what strangers can do for you. Uh, maybe this explains why Dave is afraid of bikes now, but really it's that. And then the last part that I was getting at earlier is like, of all the stories that Dave has, this is the one that he chose to share today with you. What does that mean for us? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, the more that I listen to what, what stories are being told, and I'm thinking mm -hmm. specifically about current events at the moment, we're recording on the week of mm -hmm. August the 8th on, on Friday the 12th. And there's a <laughs> lot of conversation in the media right now about the FBI and the the search of the pr the former president's home in Florida and one of the things that I'm very aware of is that a lot of the stories that we hear are not even the stories that we hear the bits of story that that we hear are not being told by the people whose stories they are like a news right. media tells right. the story of the FBI the the former president tells the story of what he sees the experience being and and that story mm -hmm. changes from day to day depending on any number of factors that i couldn't possibly begin to guess at thank heavens yeah. i'm a theologian and not a psychic the that that to me feels because stories are 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 not necessarily stories in like like stories are not being told with integrity for the people and and with care for the people who are who are part of them right i i, I suspect mm -hmm. by the media people like like you and i like what our responsibility in safeguarding the story is yeah that's interesting because i i feel i don't want to say not a big responsibility a very like local decentralized one and what i'm thinking is you know encouraging other people with stories to share them however and wherever they can because most people that I meet 
aren't going to get to have an editorial in the New York Times, yeah. right? They're not going to be an answer on Jeopardy, but they can tweet about their experience and use right. the platforms that exist that way. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of different stages yeah. right now. And I mean, stage in like the performance sense, not like the time sense. And some stages are very big and celebrated and others are very small and also celebrated. And then there's a lot of stuff in between and people are kind of paying attention to all of it uh, for, for better and for worse. And I think that's, you know, what I'm, what I'm safeguarding is that the people who want to share their stories, I want to help them know what platforms they can get to and that are beneficial for them and are the right fit for their audience, whatever that may be. Yeah. In this work, this feels, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, this feels like the, like the headiest conversation I've had in a while about like the meaning of some of this stuff. Uh, so I really appreciate the, the opportunity to honestly process a lot of it out loud. It taps into a lot of things that I've been mulling over in conver much briefer conversations. Uh, and that also I want to process in things like writing or just deeper, deeper explorations with myself. Well, I'm so grateful um, that this is a place where we can um, be working on it. Um, technical challenges, um, notwithstanding. Oh, I, well, I mean that 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 of course means that we'll we'll have to have you back for another taping at some point. In addition to this I got, one, I got I got more things to say. Don't worry. Yeah. No. 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 But. So I, I want to, one of the things that I think is really important is figuring out like how to just like take the next step. Like it's, it's hard to, we're in a time of, of life, of society, where regardless of what you believe, there are very few people that are happy with the direction that like the, the world is going right, mm -hmm. at least in the US. Like I, I, I can't speak sure. for, for communities that are, culturally economically politically deeply removed from a lot mm. of anglo like western western cultures right but so so i want to ask like what do you look to for hope inspiration uplifting in moments like these oh for so long and will continue to keep me in it which is that i just get to meet people and hear their stories and everybody's very interesting yeah there's a um, there as we were preparing for the podcast. There was a story that you told me, and you told me about um, the passing of your dad. And the phrase that you used to describe this experience was, "It made you think about what it meant to tell stories, not only for the living, but the the dead audience, the deceased audience." Yeah. Can you unpack that for me a little? Yeah, a little bit. One of the things that I experienced um, right around the time that my father passed was um, those of us around him, uh, physically, largely, um, sharing stories about him, you know, memories, basically. And I was thinking about how, unless you're in very particular settings, by settings, I mean also like community structures and families, um, that's not always done for the living. Yeah. And looking back, and this is my wearing my work hat now, but also my family member hat, I'm like, oh, I wish I'd collected some of those because it was so lovely to hear those told that way at that time. And not like experience the stories all altogether new, but like some I mean, some of them were new stories, right? I heard from um yeah. people he was friends with in the seventies and people that he worked with uh, who I didn't have a relationship with because they're his colleagues, not my friends. And just the packaging of it, right? It was a, a a crash course in my dad's life. How honored 
I was and how special it felt to be able to have that with the time that we were in. The that that word of holy, that word choice, not just mm-hmm. because I'm a theologian, but like think, thinking about the the word, like the the etiology of the word, uh, meaning set apart. And mm-hmm. I think, at least in my experience, um, religious traditions are really good at setting apart time, time to to focus on the divine, to focus on the 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 holy, the the what 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 is considered to be sacred. I wonder. Dream with me for a second. What do you think like our city would look like if more people took the time to set aside time for those beautiful, profound things? Yeah, I think there would be in a in a non quantifiable way probably a whole lot more empathy and some more connections across lines of all sort geographic, economic, racial, you name it. If people were able to hear each other's stories straight from the source and in a very kind of like nurtured environment, right? Yes. And the, a great question is what could those settings look like, right? I've met people through my professional life of of various chapters of it from all across the city and all sorts of different experiences that they've had. But many people live in a bubble and are comfortable in that bubble. And that shifts what they understand what Philadelphia is. I was talking with a friend the other day who, you know, she's used to certain accesses and privileges and took a tour of, of Philadelphia that really challenged her notions of what it means to be a Philadelphian. And you know, love this city and, and be a part of it. And it was like, what I, what I said to her was, and I say this all the time, is there are so many Philadelphias. People love to say, oh, that's that's Philly. And I'm like, well, that's maybe a common thread for your Philly, but like, there's a lot of other Philadelphias out there. And I, I know that this also isn't unique to Philly, right? This is true of Chicago. This is true of the small town that I grew up in, that there's there's various aspects to yeah. it. Yeah. And, and it's when you get to meet somebody brand new who seems to have very little in common with you, you get a different perspective for what you may think about that individual or their neighborhood or, you know, where they work, whatever it is. And, and that, that's why I'm in this work because I'm, like I said, everybody's interesting to me. I know who I am. (laughs) I've done a lot of of diving on that and, you know, tackled my own foibles and, and celebrated some things I can celebrate, but, but I've only lived my life. There's 7 billion other people out there who haven't Neil Bardhan, and that's very, very cool to me because I want to hear what all of those people have been doing their time. Neil, I'm so the there's there there's just so much beautiful curiosity in that, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you what does it take to foster and cultivate curiosity rather yeah. than the overwhelm that that we see yeah. so often in like a world that is so oversaturated with content. Yeah. I think one of the things, a, a starting place for this is, and, and this is like at an individual level, right? If I asked you, what are you curious yeah. about? You could probably list me a bunch of things, right? I've known each other, we've known each other for, I don't know, what, five years now or so. I have an idea yeah. of some of the things that you're intellectually curious about and, and so forth. But then I think what, what, is really necessary is a step beyond that to be like, what do you think you could be curious about that you don't know that you're curious about? Where do you have kind of a gap in your understanding of the world because of, you know, what you've decided is important or what messaging has been provided to you about like, oh, you should be curious about uh, the stock market. What about investments that aren't the stock market or just don't fit your your Western ideals of, of what um, finance is? How do you encourage that for people without 
yeah, I guess like you said, without the overwhelm. And I think it's out there, right? I think some people start to go down this path. And I think this is one thing that the internet actually has been pretty good for, yay internet, uh, which is expanding people's horizons about things that they just wouldn't otherwise know where to start accessing them. Yeah. Right. And this, to make it concrete, I'm thinking of, you know, a listicle of foreign words for concepts that you didn't know how to name because there's not like a, you know, a single word in English that means that it's, you know, it's translated as this whole complicated phrase, right? Something yeah. like that. Or like Wikipedia articles, right? You find yourself, I find, I find myself looking at Wikipedia lists of defunct Swedish musical groups. Would I have said I'm curious about it? No. However, have I gotten myself to a place where I'm like, do, 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 let me see how many I can find. There are, there are just so many possibilities and go back to my 7 billion thing, 7 billion people on this planet who I haven't been. What do they know that I don't? I'm trying to get it where I can. And I think the more that people do that, the better. And uh, last soapbox point for, for now, I think that shows up in very exciting spaces for some people who then can be very quick to forget it, right? Because it's it's a cute Instagram account. It's a fun human interest story somewhere. But then they're like, oh, well, okay, that's it. But if they don't allow themselves the time to process, okay, what does it mean that I just heard the story? Or how else can I access stories of people who've had similar experiences that I don't have a frame of reference for because of my upbringing or, or whatever? I think I think there's that that spark, but there's not always enough fuel for it what are the things that sort of give you that fuel i'm breathing besides <laughs> okay besides um swedish nachos yeah 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 it shows up in so many different ways and i'll give you a concrete example of something that uh came up recently for me right so my wife and i went to alaska we had some time on our own exploring meeting up with some friends uh, one of whom grew up in alaska and has had a you know fantastic resume of jobs that yeah. only exist in alaska yeah. And it opened my literal eyes, but also mind to how things function when really it was like when you're in the United States, but not on the East Coast, right? How does it work when you're, you know, of, of the same country, but with different possibilities in your geographic locale? Where's their overlap? Where is there such a gulf? And uh, yeah, and I, I also say this as like, going back to my, my thing about like people who experience different Philadelphias, right? This works on all these different scales. Different Philadelphias, different healthcare, different experience of improv and stories, and most importantly, um, different iterations of Nacho. There it is. I so appreciate the time that we've had to, to linger on some of these big ideas. I've got just nice. one question remaining for you, mm -hmm. and that is, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? More connected. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I want humans to feel more connected to each other. My guest has been Neil Varden. He is one of the most phenomenal storytellers, improvisers um, that I know. He performs regularly with the in crowd and with first person arts. And um, thank you so much for being with us on Uncommon Good today. Holly, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. My thanks to my guest, Neil Barden. You can sign up for his e-newsletter, check out the Broad Street Review, and check out First Person Arts, and get involved with all three at the links in the episode notes. 
thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia in the unceded neighborhood of the Black Bottom community and on the ancestral land of the Lenape Nation who remain here in the era of the Fourth Crow and fight for official recognition by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to this day. You can find out more about the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania and how you can support the revitalization of their culture by going to lenape-nation.org. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good. <laughs>